everybody, and welcome to Comic Club, your friendly neighborhood comic book podcast. I am your host, Blaine McGaffigan, and I'm joined, as always, by Adam. Is he an eternal, or is he a deviant cook? Ooh, you'll never know, but it's great to be here, Blaine. How you doing? Good, man. How about you? You're, you're still down here in Texas with us? How, what's the latest with you, man? I'm down in Texas. I'm in Austin right now, but I'm excited to come up to Dallas this weekend because it's somebody's birthday. Birthday boy over here. That's Blaine, big... folks. Blaine's got a birthday right, right around the corner. The big three five. I rented a theater. We're going to see Green Knight. Comic Club is getting together to the movies. We weren't able to make Black Widow happen, but we will make Green Knight happen. It's going to happen. I can't wait. I'm so excited for that movie. I'm excited to celebrate with one of my best buds. Maybe we'll talk a little comics while we're there. Who knows? Who knows, man? Who knows indeed? Well, we are streaming today live from Olympia. Quick warning, we'll be spoiling this month's comic, so proceed with caution. Adam, take it away. What did we read this month? This month, we read Eternals by Neil Gaiman and John Romita Jr., which reintroduces the godlike Eternals to the Marvel Universe. After living as humans for decades, a group of ancient beings are suddenly remembering their true identities as immortal beings and all the power that comes along with them while being immediately thrust into a battle that could determine the plate, uh, the fate of the planet. Blaine, what did you think about Eternals? The Eternals by Neil Gaiman. I talked last week that I had read it before, and man, I did not understand a lick of it then. I was new to the MCU, and so I was hoping that this read-through, I was going to have sort of a breakthrough. I love Neil Gaiman. We're going to talk about his whole work, body of work, his comics work, everything. But I was really approaching this comic ready to be, you know, an Eternal super fan, going to roll up to the movies and tell everybody why the Eternals are so badass. But honestly, like this comic did just not do it for me. Um, it, He's doing a lot to try to fold the Eternals into the MCU, and you can really see him kind of forcing it in a big way. And the characters are just not given enough room here to become anything other than these, you know, Jack Kirby-esque archetypes, you know. So I I, I don't know. What, what was your take? I don't want to dog on it too much. I feel like I had a, a similar experience to you one thing that I thought, especially at the end, was that this is kind of, um, you know, maybe one of the issues with starting a new run of something is that they're laying a lot of groundwork at the beginning. And so much of this is just introducing you to characters that honestly, for the first time, I didn't know. Um, so that was helpful. But you don't really get a ton of story and even the character work that they could do, they could really only focus on like one or two characters. You know, it was a lot of Makari and a lot of Cersei and then a couple, you know, you get some other stuff with the other people, but yeah, it kind of just was hard to dig into. It's very, you know, I don't want to use the word fantastical, but it has a lot of mythology behind yes. it where you can tell there's all these stories of gods and um, immortal beings and different levels of gods and immortal beings. Cause you've got yeah. the Eternals, 
you've got deviants, you've got celestials, yeah. and it's kind of a lot to take in. Yeah, and something I didn't—I don't think I quite realized. I think over in the DC universe, Jack Kirby had created the fourth world, and we've seen some of them appear in the DC movies, right? We see sure. Dark Seed. We know Mister Miracle hasn't been in it, but they've entered the consciousness because DC has been using those characters ongoing since the '60s. They've been around. They've been in the Justice League. They've interacted. Dark Seed is always attacking the Justice League. Over here at Marvel, after Jack Kirby's initial run sort of got canceled, the Eternals cropped up, you know, one short runs like each decade. Very small. They were barely introduced. And so I, I didn't realize this, but Marvel went to Neil Gaiman. They were like, bro, you know, they're always mining the depths. They're always like, yeah. you know, let's go, let's go explore the Inhumans. Let's go explore these this team. And they're like, we need to bring the Eternals in. Let's kind of make sense of all what Jack Kirby was doing. And good Lord, that first issue when it's, there's some really cool artwork of like these double page spreads and like Eternals like chomping down on Deviants and stuff like that. But once you're getting into like there's four different hosts, like they call them like the uh, where the Celestials come and there's like all this backstory of that. It was a little too like referential, like like simplify that because good Lord, I still don't even know what happened and I don't need to know. It doesn't matter. Like like there's some, you know, some basic elements of these sort of gods were created, but there were so many fine details that were very unnecessary. Yeah, I agree. It just kind of, you know, it was just hard to really sink my teeth into and feel like I, I was getting a lot out of it. I think it just, you feel like you're on surface level the whole time, kind of. A hundred percent. And I think, you know, one of the things here is uh, the big turn, the big kind of like reveal, or there, there was kind of a couple of them, but Sprite. And, and if you know Sprite, which most people don't, a lot of, I think the expectations was, was that most people who are going to read this are going to be fresh, not know anything about Eternals because they hadn't been written in a while. Sprite is always kind of like the Loki figure. He's always the kind of trickster god. Um, you know, he plays that archetype. And there is a turn where you realize that he's kind of the bad guy that had, you know, gone against them and he had made himself mortal and he was going to do it to the arrest of the Eternals. And he rewrote history to make them all forget their whole histories. That landed so flat to me just because we didn't know anything about Sprite. There was no sort of mystery that I even realized. And when it was just dumped on us with exposition... It didn't have that sort of like, again, like brain exploding of like, whoa, like it kind of caught me off guard just because I was like, what? Like, oh, this gets more complicated? Good Lord. Yeah, I, I agree. And I could see that, you know, it was supposed to have a lot of weight, like you said, but having no familiarity with the original run, it it meant nothing. And yeah, it, it, that was kind of... I guess there's a lot of reverence for that original run within here, but if you're not familiar with it, which is I think what they were trying to do is introduce it to new people. I don't really see yeah. the impact being as, you know, as special as like something like, oh, we're going to bring Bucky back. Like yeah. what if Bucky actually survived? Because this is like, okay, how do we how do we bring this story into the modern age? Like what would happen? Okay, well maybe Sprite decides he doesn't want to be an 11 year old anymore. And that's what causes mm -hmm. it all. Like that's, you know, right. eventually that's how they got there. And I mean, I like the idea. I like the idea of, 
trying to figure out what a character would do um, to bring them into the modern age. But it just without that backstory, it just kind of didn't do much for me. Yeah. And all right, let's let's kind of move sort of that. I mean, we're we're on the same page there. But I wanted to know from you, because I, I had read this before. I had a faint knowledge of the Eternals. I'm reading the current Eternals run by Kieran Gillen, um, which I highly recommend. It's it's really interesting. Still just as confusing. But what do you think of sort of the Eternals as characters, as the sort of godlike archetypes? It's very rooted in kind of this um, Greek mythology, right? Thena, you know, Athena, Zeus. Right. Like, it, it's all... Icarus, all these words, names, it's all playing with this kind of ancient aliens, like the aliens created humanity thing. What do you, besides the actual like story that we read in Neil Gaiman's Eternals, what do you think of the Eternals themselves, maybe their design, the sort of concept of um, these characters in their, in their place in the MCU as, as kind of a newcomer to it? I mean, I feel like it's kind of like a natural progression of comics to be like okay well who are the most powerful beings of all time to try and kind of explore that and and you can see you know the connection between mythology and just being able to mine kind of classic stories for characters and worlds that you want to bring into and so taking greek or roman gods and kind of adapting them to comic books i think is a really natural progression but i think you can get lost in the woods really quickly because there's a lot of i don't know i don't want to say fantastical again but there's just a lot of huge um moments and like just ultra powerful beings that uh, I think kind of can put you into a corner. Cause then you think like, why do we even care about these guys like Batman? If there's these gods that are walking amongst us and that's kind of, you know, they get into that problem a couple times with Thor in the MCU. Yes. Cause he's a God and same thing, you know, Greek mythology, Norse mythology, just taking different stories of, of God like figures. And um, when you make someone too powerful, it, it becomes an issue like pretty quickly. Yeah, and and it's sort of not a new thing, like you mentioned. I mean, Thor, um, Hercules is also in uh, the Marvel Universe, and you kind of have to reckon with, what is Marvel's interpretation of this? Um, All right, you kind of skirted around it before, but man, Marvel is so, they have to walk this thin line. And the line is that this legend, Jack Kirby, created these guys. He also created the Fantastic Four. He also created, he's done these iconic runs. He's created so many characters. He has done so many things. Adam, I don't even think I've literally ever picked up and read a Jack Kirby comic. Have you? I mean, I'm sure that I've seen his work in a yeah. collection, but yes. not, I've, I've read the Galactus Saga Okay. But um, that's probably the closest I've gotten to picking up a Jack Kirby work, but I don't think I intentionally did it knowing like, oh, this is Jack Kirby. So, you know, and I mentioned that because he really is, he looms so large over this project. He looms so large because for Neil Gaiman and for these old creators, Jack Kirby is their Neil Gaiman. You know, he's, he's their like sort of pinnacle and peak and... 
for us modern readers, we didn't grow up reading Jack Kirby. So we're right. getting the sort of imprint of the sort of legend. And Neil Gaiman has to reckon with, you know, do I ape him? Do I make it a pastiche? And I think he said he doesn't. He wants to sort of make it his own interpretation of Jack of what Jack Kirby was doing. Can you kind of, before we go on, I guess, talk about Jack Kirby a little bit more, maybe give us some backstory on him so that our listeners kind of understand who he is if you've never read him. If maybe you've seen his artwork, you have a little bit more insight there. So Jack Kirby is also known as the king. And that's because along with Stan Lee, he created most of the superheroes that the mass consciousness is aware of. Uh, yes. Mass consciousness is, is aware of. He has also been called one of the chief architects of American imagination because of how prevalent these people, uh, these you know, these figures are, and kind of what he did to introduce them to the world. I'm going to rattle off some of the characters that he yeah, created. Um, he had a few different phases in his career, bouncing between Marvel and DC. A lot of issues with his pay. Um, he was one of the first artists to really start to protest against the work for hire model and champion creator owned comics. And that was a big reason why he kind of bounced around a bunch of times because um, he wanted more ownership of his stuff. Naturally. So some of the characters that he created are like Blaine said, fantastic Four, captain America, Hulk, Iron Man, Thor, X-Men, black Panther, the Avengers, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Bucky Barnes, Darkseed, Doctor Doom, Scarlet Witch and Vision, Loki and Kang the Conqueror, Silver Surfer and Galactus, Peggy Carter, Nick Fury, and of course, Eternals, who we're talking about right now. And not only did he have just an incredible idea of story, grasp of story and character and that kind of work, his art is highly influential. Yes. Um, he was kind of, I guess, one of the first big artists to really bring a more cinematic style to it. They talk, I did a little, you know, research on this and a lot of things come up about how um, he was a big, big breaker of the form. He loved to break that form and he would do, you know, images across multiple pages, across multiple panels, going beyond the borders, things that people just hadn't really tried, but now seem, you know, commonplace. Um, he was also famous for this technique of being able to uh, show energy fields and mm -hmm. electricity. They call it the Kirby Crackle. I love it's that name so name. much. Yeah. yeah, and if you can picture it, it's kind of like the use of negative space and almost like dots where the color is kind of coming in in dots and it just like it looks like electricity if you can imagine yeah. what that looks like. And yeah, basically he just was had a hand in creating all these characters. The MCU is almost entirely based on his work um, and his work with Stan Lee. And yeah, he's incredible. I, I, I love that you brought that up about sort of the rights issue because there's something in, in Marvel comics especially, and they call it the Marvel method. And whenever you go back and look at who wrote all of these comics, you'll see Stan Lee wrote 12 books at a time, right? He wrote a million books at a time. Artists can't do that much. Well, how did he do that? They used the Marvel method. And in the Marvel method, he would describe a page or a sequence, and it kind of became this really quick backhand. So it would be like, 
the Eternals arrive on Earth and um, fight the Deviants for six pages. <laughs> and, and that's what he would write. And then Jack Kirby would go and lay it out for six pages and draw it all and create the characters and create the look of the deviants. And then Stan, and then Stan Lee would go back and write the dialogue. So he would, you know, they would have the bubbles and he would say, yeah, then Icarus says, die, you stupid deviant. And then so he would, he would write. But the point is that there is sort of this dispute on, okay, well, how can you say you were really writing it and creating this if Jack Kirby and these artists, and there's many more of them as well in that time, that were really doing a lot of the weight. I mean, some of these scripts I think that um, Stan Lee would do, were they were outlines. He was, you know, they were outlines, and then he would fill in the dialogue. And if you go look at the dialogue, it's cheesy AF. Like it's hard. It's it's like really difficult to read. That's also a, a, the style of the time. Yeah. Um, but uh, the thing about Jack Kirby is you, you mentioned the Kirby Crackle. It, it's iconic. I always think of he does these sort of line work where he does these sort of like it's like a brush stroke and he does them like sort of down for the shadows down people's like legs and stuff. And it's so it, it's just him and and people copy it all the time. And um, I mean, it's just such like he has this iconic way of doing art. Yeah, I also read that part of his work process is that he'd never use sketches. Uh, oh, he dang. would just, he was so good and confident that the work would just pretty much flow onto him. He would draw from the top down and that would be the page. Fascinating. He used it. He was pretty much a pencil user. So someone else would always ink it. And he didn't even care who inked his stuff because he was so confident that his line work was coming across. I just found that incredible. I was like, whoa. Yeah, and I mean, the production on Old School Marvel, if you sort of read about it, I mean, they were just cranking these things out. They yeah. were really, he worked so fast. He's so prolific. He has done so much stuff. We spent that time talking about him because, like I said, he looms large over not only this project, but the MCU in general. If you read any of these writers and artists, they will all talk about Jack King Kirby because to a young kid in the 60s and 70s, compared to the rest of the comics that were on the stands, this was something unlike anything they had ever seen kind of in their lives. It it was a real pivotal thing. It was, I think he expresses, uh, especially for Eternals, he says like 2001, A Space Odyssey was an inspiration. It's kind of like that. Like it's that galaxy brain, like changing your life sort of I did not know comics could be like this and for modern readers we just haven't seen it as much and we appreciate it kind of like we appreciate Shakespeare where it's just like yeah like you know Shakespeare's great but I'm not reading it you know what I mean I'm not like I'm not going and and hitting up you know Richard the third again so it, you know we gotta call attention to him because he is such a pivotal point but it's tricky because it's up to modern writers then to bring them into the modern timeline. And that, I think, is the most important point, Adam, is whenever you're talking about Batman and Superman, I mean, they were kind of – you go back and read the ones from the 40s and 50s, and there's a lot of dumb comics. But what's so great is that 
modern creators reinterpret them every five, 10 years, right? So, oh, oh, this is the Superman of the 70s. You know, he's going to space all the time. Here's the Superman of the 80s. He's darker. And then 90s, the death of Superman. And then you have black suit Superman. And then what does he mean for the 2000s? You know, after 9-11, you know, you're always reinterpreting them and giving them meaning. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. And the point here is that it wasn't really done for the Eternals often. And so whenever you go back and Neil Gaiman goes back and mines the depths of the Eternals, he's struggling to be like, do I make it that crazy, highfalutin, celestial, you know, uh, cosmic entities, or do I make it grounded? How do I do this? And I, I think that was the sort of push and pull of this book that I was I was kind of grappling with the entire time. Yeah, I think that's so well said. And I think that's kind of the feeling that you you are left with is that it, it seems a little unsure of itself almost. Yeah. And I, I mean, at, at the same time, it sort of gets the job done. You know, we, we can say that, but the mandate was kind of like, can you bring these guys into the Marvel Universe? And he did. Uh, because Jack Kirby's, you know, there was a, like some crossovers with like the thing and the Hulk, but they weren't, he wasn't really into the Marvel universe. And now, I mean, there's going to be a movie. We're going to get into it in Adaptation Alley, obviously, but they're bringing full on into it. And now it's the job of Chloe Zhao to, to modernize it, right? Like, you know, Neil Gaiman had a shot. Kieran Gillen's doing it in comics now. And now, so we are getting those reinterpretations. I'm super excited about taking a scroll in Adaptation Alley. But let's move over into our best lines. This is the section of the show where we showcase the written word and highlight our favorite moments of dialogue, exposition, and more. Adam, start us off. What is your first best line? My first one comes uh, about halfway through, maybe in the third, the last last third of the um, series. And this is the morning where the Celestial is starting to wake up and he's basically using all these townspeople nearby in San Francisco as a radio, I guess I would say. And he's sort of speaking through them. Um, and this is actually before any of the dialogue. This is a line of description that I just really liked. It says, San Francisco in the gray time before dawn. And I just thought that was such a nice piece of description that I could fully relate to. I think we all know that moment. You're up too early. It's eerily quiet and anything could happen. Yeah. And um, Neil Gaiman um, to speak on him just a little bit, we're going to get into his whole sort of history here, but he writes about gods. I, I think he is equipped for this. And he kind of has this sort of gothic literary sensibilities that he brings to comics. And that line, like you described, is it captures that perfectly, Is is he can really put words in a really interesting way to kind of create those lines to the sort of not just cosmic but mythological and i think that was a really cool description there yeah it's very eloquent way of setting it up too you know you can tell his background in novels comes through yep what do you got all right mine is kind of a um 
I, I like those deviants. I like those two deviants. They're kind of like the, the bad guys of this. And they're, you know, they, I think they do this. It's a trope sometimes where there's like these like duo of baddies that are kind of quipping around a little bit. So I actually have two best lines by them. But uh, my first one is they're trying to find a way to kill Icarus because he is just, well, he's an eternal. You know, they don't die. And he's talking on the phone to some mysterious person. And he says, so, so what are you suggesting? That we go nuclear? You know I don't go nuclear. Religious reasons. What about an acid bath? And it was just like, th- there's not a ton of comedy in this book, but I love those. Like, I, I felt for the deviants. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, I, I love these guys. And, um, man, I love that line. Yeah, they were great. Pretty much the only source of comedy, I think, in the whole thing. Um, for the most part, there's a couple good uh, uh, Ant-Man lines here and there. But... Yeah, they do that kind of like they're kind of bumbling, yes. evil henchmen guys. Um, I like them too. They're kind of like big bodies, big big hulky dudes. Thugs, That's right. Classic thugs. Classic with with a mouth and mouth in the set of a stomach. That like yeah. that was just so goofy. <laughs> that was great. Um, my next one is actually just a little bit later in that scene I was describing earlier, where the celestial is using everyone as a radio and. I could have, you know, cherry picked so many of these lines because they were they were honestly like making me laugh a little bit because they were so like big and like grandois, yes. and grandiose. And just like I was like, this is Neil just flexing. This is a writer just just having a moment with the words. Um, the, uh, the one that I chose is to uh, it's a sleeping couple, a husband and a wife. They're speaking in their sleep. And they say. I have made life from the building blocks of life, and I have taken life away. This small planet circles its small sun, time after time, and the seasons change, and the world changes, and I waited in darkness through half a million revolutions. (laughs) So, yeah, Neil Gaiman is just having a moment. Um, One of my only... Neil Gaiman experiences is his Norse mythology book. Uh, okay. And this, I was like, okay, I could see why someone would want to write a Norse mythology, like a dedicated Norse mythology book. If this is their writing style. Yeah. And I think that happened so many times in comics, the, what you just called out of these writers just going. So I, I don't even know what the word is. Meta big grandiose just really playing with language in a like and you can kind of only do it in comics because it's already so fantasy and goofy that it doesn't have to be taken so seriously but i feel like i see that often and i love when writers just go really hard like the black hole system with the the heart of a nebulous star where sleeps the dreaming eternal who who fire you know it's like you can just keep building these like words and and like on top of each other just create fantasy it's wild just so like theatrical and I don't even know like melodramatic. I yes, guess, but it's it is fun and you can't can't get away with it in every medium. But comics, uh, it works well. That's right. All right, my next line is uh, again same deviance, and I want to use this as a kind of a jumping off point to one of the themes of this book. Um, they're walking down. This is whenever we get the introduction of the dreaming celestial, the celestial who dreams, and one of the deviants says. Religion is what separates us from the animals, my friend. Belief in higher powers. Belief that someone greater than ourselves cares about each one of us. And I know what you're thinking. If we let today's prayer slip, who would know? We would know, my friend. We would know. 
And that was a moment where I was like, wait a second. Are the Deviants the good guys? And and the Eternals are the bad guys? And the Celestials are the bad guys? What the hell? And and I, what do you think about that, Adam? I mean, like, so the Celestials create two races of people from the sort of human, you know, pre-human Neanderthals. They create the Deviants and they create the Eternal to sort of protect the Earth. But the Celestials just chow down on the the deviants and the one celestial who's like guys maybe we shouldn't you know um annihilate this whole race of people um they enslave and and put them underneath the earth i i don't it was just a weird thing and i think there's this theme of religion that didn't get played overtly but is an underlying on all of eternals and will probably be the film of just gods creating you know and then free will what does it all mean and who is the good guy and what what is your chosen path what do you have anything there because i i just wanted to bring that up who a lot of big questions a lot of big questions there is a line specifically about um from icarus where he's talking about this like very directly and he's trying to figure it all out and he says it's the whole thing about intelligent design is i know that like a more powerful being created me I just yeah. don't know what my purpose is. Yeah. And um, that's, you know, that's a question that has existed in humanity throughout time. I think, uh, why are we all here? And um, it's interesting to try to explore that. And I think that the, the deviants, you know, some of the best, I, I, I pretty much most of the best villains kind of have a point. Yes. They, they, you know, their, their techniques might be, questionable their end game might be wrong but a lot of them come from a place that uh, is somewhat relatable especially given their circumstances and then these you know these deviants they're just trying to survive the same way that you know the human race or the eternals are trying to survive and if they were created to be food is you know they were just put there to that is it wrong for them to try and rebel against that what is what's the point of free will if not for that yeah, I just thought the de- – it's just so weird because I, I didn't do any deep dive into Celestials. You know, they're always like this weird background cosmic figure in the MCU. Yeah. And they are kind of played for – wait, are they good or are they bad? Are they robots? Do they have a um, – they have do they have morality? Do they have our best intentions? Like what the hell is up with the Celestials? And I, I just love that religion line because – you know, it plays, they were, deviants were created and they are a certain way. They're kind of um, monstrous in their own way, the way that they look. Um, And so that was sort of not their choice, right? Um, They did sort of take over the world in in one of the hosts, but I mean, so of humans, I I don't know. I, I, I just, I think there was a lot of meat on that bone that wasn't really explored. And I think it is that through line of religion because it's the same thing with humans of wait. So wait, the Eternals kind of helped create us in a big way because we were Neanderthals back then or or proto-humans. And now a lot of our technological advancements is because of you. So so you're our gods, right? So there's the gods are like it's like a three-tier system and and who who are the good guys and and where's my place in it? Uh, I don't know. It, that's just one of those big question marks, and I don't think the book really answered it, but it did like throw out those questions. Yeah, and I, I honestly don't 
it's probably not even trying to answer it because you can't. Totally. You really, can't what you want to do is just throw it out there and get everyone to think about it. But just it is a little unsatisfying. Just give us the answer, Neil. Just tell us the point of life. Is that Do so I hard? have free will, Neil? Just tell me. I'm tired of, of searching for the answers. I just want to know. Just it's give it to us in comic book form, please, because it's easy to read. Yeah, skip to the end. What do you got as your last best line? My last line um, comes a little bit later, and this is when the Eternals that we meet in these seven issues, um, they've all been woken up at this point, and they finally come to this celestial that's rising from the ground. And who else comes there? A couple of the Avengers. We got Iron Man. We got Ant-Man, Hank Pym. And um, they're immediately, like, freaked out by these Eternals. They don't know who they are. And uh, Ant-Man, Ant-Man goes to confront um, Zara, Zurus, who is kind of, I guess, like the de facto, not the leader, but he's like the king of Eternals. I don't really understand the hierarchy there. Anyways, they go to confront Zurus, and um, we forget that throughout this whole saga, this is right when Civil War is happening in the MCU. So there's like this little peppering of the Superhero Registration Act that they just bring in there for no reason whatsoever, basically, other than the fact that, hey, they had to tie it into what was happening. Continuity, yeah. Continuity. And uh, and Ant-Man is like, whose side are you on? You have to choose sides. You have to register. And Zurus says, if you saw two groups of children arguing over which of them could play in some waste ground, would you choose sides? And Iron Man just stares at him. He's like, okay, well, yeah, maybe maybe we're out of our depth here. And I just thought that was such a ridiculous moment. These gods have shown up and you're like, just either pick a side, man. You're either yeah. with the government or against it. It's like, yeah. there might be more important things at play here, Ant-Man. A hundred percent. And thank goodness they didn't fight. I think Icarus like talks him down, you know, using his mental powers. He's like, just, just don't fight me. Just stand there. He's like, okay, fine. You got a point. Because the Eternals would just annihilate them utterly. And and I think that line is another one of those sort of galaxy brain moments where it's just like it puts it on the cosmic spectrum, right? You're squabbling, you're fighting. It kind of undercuts and kind of makes fun of Civil War, you know, in a a good way because, you know, it's, it's so important to the MCU and you're just like, Guys, there's bigger there's bigger things going on here. There's there, there's fucking celestials in, in San yeah, Francisco. Well, what are we talking about here? The registration <laughs> act? Come on. Yeah. What do you got for your last one? Um same thing, dude. This this pairs off perfectly to what you said and I think the dreaming celestial is taking the form of Cersei and talking to Makari um in this weird dream sequence where Makari is kind of like um in this fugue state and and he's conversing with the Dreaming Celestial. And the Dreaming Celestial says, you know, some complicated concept. And Makari's like, can you kind of explain it? Can you just tell me a little <laughs> bit more? He's like, can you explain democracy, tyranny, comedy to a bacterium? Try explaining the concept of the Holy Trinity to a blade of grass. And it's just <laughs> that same sort of thing that you were like riffing on is just like, again, it's the tier system right? Eternals can't relate at all to the human struggles. And then the Celestials see the struggles of the Eternals and their knowledge as just so limited in their own ways. And it just, it keeps bubbling up to sort of like, what is the most powerful and like all knowing 
you know, being in the MCU and it's just like, good Lord. <laughs> like, yeah. like the Eternals are, are a blade of grass compared to them. Wow. Oh man. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. And it's funny. I remember reading this one, you know, listicle of like ranking the most powerful characters in the MCU and yeah. the top five are people like you've never even heard of. Right. But it's like, this person is immortal and can, consume planets and universes but they can also be defeated by this one person who's slightly above them because right like they just have to have somewhere to go that's right that's right and 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 there's a reason we don't there's a reason we don't haven't heard of them or they don't appear much because they it's just like it's too big yeah, and i, I think like, we see oh. We see some of that stuff like in big events like the Infinity Gauntlet. I think there's like chaos and like the Living Tribunal. I always just love the name, the Living Tribunal. I don't know what it is. I'm sure I've read it in a comic at some point, but I just love the entity, the Living Tribunal. Love that entity. I love the Watcher, who's like the The most powerful, but can't interfere. Can't interfere. Cannot interfere, yet he sometimes does. He he always, when he really needs to. There's a little Watcher moment in uh, when the Celestial gets yeah. woken up, I think, right? A little Galactus moment, too. Yeah. He's, he yeah. felt fear. He forgot yeah. what it's like to feel fear. I love that. that he's, he's, Celestial's more powerful than Galactus. Keep that in our rankings. Keep that in the rankings, the power rankings of the MCU. And we'll update those, folks. Yeah, yeah. We'll have the official... We'll that blog post you read, We will. that's the sort of unofficial. We'll create the official comic yeah. club version. All right, let's move it on over to the best at what they do. This is the segment where we chat about the creators themselves, covering how they got started in comics, highlighting their notable work. First up, we have Neil Gaiman. Adam, tell me, what is your relationship with Neil Gaiman? How do you perceive him sort of in the literary comics consciousness? Have you read anything by him before? What do you got? He's one of those big names that I feel like when you kind of are first getting into comics, you might get thrown at you because he's just, I guess, very iconic and um, very influential in, you know, some respects. Sandman, I know, is kind of his big work. People always talk about it. I have never read it personally. Um, This is only my second experience with the gay man, as they call him. And the first one I mentioned earlier was this, he has this book of Norse mythology. It's not very long. It's just a little collection. And basically he just tried to um, not update, but just kind of retell the classic Norse myth, myths like Thor and Loki and um, just make it a little more palatable for a modern reader. It was nice. It's like really well written, but it doesn't, you know, offer you too much of his creative uh, perspective. Yeah, but it gives you a look inside of like, what he loves and this sort of gods and mythology is a running theme through literally everything he creates whenever i was compiling this i i read that one as well adam and everybody out there if you're going to read one of his novels listen to the audiobook um read by him because his british sultry voice is so amazing. He's kind of, again, I, I put him as like one of these sort of modern literary figures and, you know, old literary people, it was very sort of important for them to read their own work. You hear it in their voice, Ginsburg and, you know, 
Walt Whitman. I don't even know. Yeah, um, yeah. You hear it in their voice and it's a performance. And I think he continues that tradition because he does a lot of live performances. He's, I, I was on his website. He's playing Houston, Texas, like later this year. We're playing. He's, you know, going to present some sort of work and tell a story. He's a storyteller. And you got to hear it in his own voice because, God, he's just beautiful voice. Playing in Houston, huh? Comic Club Road Trip. Comic Club Road Trip. Here we come. Um, all right. I-, I wanted to go through some of his stuff. He's kind of like, you look at him and he is this ultra, like, sort of British goth, like, messy, scraggly hair. He's probably got a scarf on. He's got this, like, salt and pepper beard. He's kind of got this great look to him. But, I mean, you said it best. Whenever he came up, he actually picked up, of all things, he made friends with Alan Moore. So, you know, whenever you first get into comics, it's like Alan Moore, Frank Miller, and then Neil Gaiman might be your third, you might hear. And uh, one of Alan Moore's seminal early works was Miracle Man, um, which we, we got to read that on Comic Club. But Neil Gaiman actually continued it. After Alan Moore finished it, Neil Gaiman had a run, I believe, of like, uh, you know, a short run continuing that story. Um, got to read it. Next, you alluded to the Sandman. If you go back and listen to our Zero issue, that was like young college Blaine's like understanding that comics are a medium unlike anything else. Sandman is incredible. It is um, published by Vertigo, which was an imprint of DC at the time. From 1989 to 1996, Sandman is, it tells about the story of the endless. So even above gods, right? There's the gods and then there's the endless. You have dream, you have death, you have delirium, you have destiny. Uh, There's a couple more in there and uh, desire. And I... Love that book so much. It is very gothic. It is very literary. There is a whole Midsummer's Night Dream, like six issue run where like Shakespeare's in it. And it's done by all these different artists. And it's one of these ones where I like literally gave the first trade paperback to my like father who's never read a comic. And I'm like, it's time that you get into comics. (laughs) And this is what I'm going to start you off with. Um, I think they're adapting that Adam into a show very soon. And I, there was kind of a sneak peek. We got to, we might have to put the same in. It's so long. So we got to figure out how to approach it. But um, that one's a big one. Yeah. That's one that they've talked about, tried to adapt for a while. I remember for a long time, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was involved. I don't know if he's still, atta- he may still be attached. I know that he, he um, might. Bryn of Tarth from Game of Thrones, I can't remember the actress's name, is playing Lucifer. Uh, Lucifer was a uh, spinoff of his Sandman that had its own sort of story so as well. So that had a run. I don't think he wrote that. But um, yeah, it had a huge impact in comics. And as I was reading about it, it was like selling more than Batman and Superman in the 90s, which is crazy. Um, okay, continuing that his work. Speculation bubble, um, I- I'm just going through. Yeah, big time. I'm going through. First up, comics, and then I'm going to get into his novels. So he did The Sandman, and then he went over to Marvel and did kind of a Victorian eight-issue limited series called Marvel 1602. Again, playing with this gothic Victorian sort of vibes. What I remember, Adam, is, spoiler alert, in 2009, Batman died. Okay, sorry, guys. Um, 
you gotta gotta go check that out. Well, Alan Moore had written this story called Whatever Happened to the Man from Tomorrow After Superman Died. It's kind of this iconic single issue. And they got Neil Gaiman to write Whatever Happened to the Cape Crusader. And I have these two issues sitting back here. And whenever that came out, it was like a, again, a moment in comics. And there's these sort of moments where it's like something happens. Like, did you pick up the issue where Batman dies and it's, you know, everybody tries to collect it? But then there's like, oh, Neil Gaiman stepping in and writing. This is like a, it's a literary moment in comics. Yeah. Everyone, come on out. You got to you gotta get this one. Um, another one I'm going to recommend is he revisited the Sandman 2013 with J.H. Williams III. It is the Sandman Overture. It was delayed a ton, but it is probably the most beautiful comic I have ever seen. He revisits his baby, and maybe we do that one, Adam, because God, that comic is so pretty. He's currently overseeing the Sandman Universe line at Vertigo. He's not writing any of them, but there's like four ongoing books right now. Going over to his novels, nearly all of these have been adapted, so you might have heard of these as movies or TV shows. Good Omens in 1990 with Terry Pratchett. That was a series on Amazon. He did Stardust in 1999. Um, That's a movie you can go check out if you're interested. American Gods, which is probably one of his biggest and most famous work. He wrote that in 2001. Again, exploring the mythology of gods and their place kind of in the modern world. Um, then most recently Norse mythology in 2017, he's been dabbling in TV and radio all throughout that. That's Neil Gaiman, everybody. Let's move over to the penciler of this book, John Romita Jr. Adam, same question. What is your relationship with John Romita Jr.? How familiar with his work are you? What is your take on him? Do you like him? Um, I don't think I have a great familiarity with his work. A lot of times I must admit I can overlook the penciler sometimes um, unless it's someone that I kind of see pop up a few times maybe. John Romita Jr. was something a, a name that resonated with me. I thought I had heard of it before, but off the top of my head, I couldn't point you to any of his big works or anything um, really other than that. So I kind of felt like I was going into it sort of with a clean slate. Fair enough. Um, John Romita Jr. is the son of legend John Romita Sr. who drew Spider-Man back in the day, or that's one of his most famous things. Um, I just wanted to kind of talk about like John Romita Jr. for me is like, I have had ebbs and flows of loving him and then kind of being over him and then loving him again. Same way I have, frankly, with Alex Ross, the kind of cover artist. And I think it speaks a lot to these artists whenever they change. John Romita Jr. and Alex Ross, but John Romita Jr., he's been doing comics forever. And I'm going to list some of his things here. He's mainly been at Marvel doing comics and he has a really iconic way it's his way of drawing sort of like i always think of the faces they're very boxy he kind of makes them elongated sometimes he like they're very almost like kind of like skinny and long it's kind of it's weird but he changes and i think that's one of the most important things of artists is there's kind of an unfortunately short kind of shelf life for artists in the big two because 
there's the house styles and we've talked about the house styles and there's a certain style of like you go back and read 80s comics and you can tell it's an 80s comic the moment you open it because of the art and those guys a lot of times they don't change their art style and they'll bring back one of these artists to draw a modern comic and modern readers just open it and it's just like oh god like that does not look like 2000s like dynamic crazy artwork do you, you know what i mean adam yeah yeah it just feels dated and and he's adapted and i think that's my point there is that he has kind of always changed with that all right here we go marvel stuff spider-man huge run there he did iron man with david michelini we did um you know we talked about him whenever we did venom and i think he uh you know that was a big iron man run that he did a big daredevil arc featuring typhoid mary in the 90s he's frequently inked by klaus jansen who is you know they're like one of those hardcore duos and then uh world war hulk if you read world war hulk and then last uh one i wanted to call out for marvel is Daredevil, The Man Without Fear. It is kind of the Daredevil origin story where Daredevil has like that black, you know, mask over his head before he gets the horn, the red horns. And uh, he illustrated that the writer of that was Frank Miller, the kind of, you know, Daredevil, you know, legend. So definitely check that one out. He did Kick Ass with Mark Miller. You know, we recently did Jupiter's Legacy. So, you know, kind of building those threads there. Comic Club is, you know, kind of crossing paths here. Then most recently, he has been over at DC Comics, and this is um, he did Superman with Jeff Johns in 2014. He did an All Star Batman with Scott Snyder, and he did Superman Year One with Frank Miller. And it's weird to see him do DC work because he has cemented himself as kind of like a Marvel artist for so long. The same way when Bendis jumped over to DC, it's like whoa, like it's kind of uh, alarming because you're just so used to him drawing the certain universe. Yeah, but we got to historically it seems like these guys bounce around a lot. And 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 it's you got you got to. You got to mix it yeah. up. And I I I think it's fun, you know, I've been drawing Spider-Man and you know these same guys forever. Let's go draw a letter another universe, another corner of some characters you haven't done before. Um okay, I just wanted to call out these last people. We're not going to um spend too too long. Inked by Danny Mickey and Tom Palmer. Um, there are some fill-in artists, as, I mean, inkers as well, because, I, again, I think they needed help getting this book out on time. Colors by Matt Hollingsworth. Letters by Todd Klein, who have, we have seen him pop up before, specifically with Batman Year One. He's done so many books. And then that cover art, which we loved in our first impressions by Rick Barry. God, that cover art is sick. Let's move it on over, because we're talking about art to the Art Awards this is the segment where we hand out awards to specific visual moments in the book. It can be a single panel, it can be the coloring or lettering, sometimes it can be a whole scene. Adam, you start us off, give out our first art award of the night. First award of the night is going to go to a two-page spread. This is kind of when you're starting to see Sprite's plan reveal itself. He's gotten Makari to come down to what we'll find out to be a celestial and this is the moment when it's starting to wake up. Huge overhead shot. You see this massive celestial ripping it apart is a bunch of energy. Lots of dots, okay? This is getting the Kirby Crackle Award. It's awesome. It's got like this purple and pink energy field just surging through and around this celestial. It looks incredible. Great homage to the king himself. I was so hoping you were going to grab some of these sort of big, grandiose spreads of the Celestials because 
those are kind of the most Kirby-esque references. The way just the Celestials look, their designs are so weird. They're like these big, bulky, round robots with these geometric shapes that are like, I I could never come up with that in my wildest dreams. And I think John Romita Jr. does a really good job of making those spreads like feel massive. Oh, yeah. Loved them. I do love the design of those robots. And there's a line... I think from Ant-Man where he's like, they look Japanese. I bet they're Japanese. Yeah, that, that's right. Like kai, like Japanese robots are fighting kaiju or something. Yeah, exactly. What you got? First award? My first award is the Tears in the Rain Award. And it's this kind of dark and brooding moment where you see um, Icarus. And he is, you know, in shadow. And it is raining across. It's this four-panel page. And at first, you just see the shadow with this trench coat kind of billowing off, just pure shadows with rain streaming across. The next panel, it zooms in a tad. And then the third panel, a lightning flashes. And you see just white and black. And it's almost Frank Miller-esque, like Sin City, um, where you see the kind of really high contrast of Icarus in his civilian clothes. And then the next, the light just kind of comes on and it's the first time you see an Eternal in their, you know, Jack Kirby costumes with the Icarus and he's got the red and the circles and stuff like that. And it's just a great reveal. And um, that's why it gets the Tears in the Rain Award. Yeah, I loved that. I like Icarus's street look a lot more. I mean, the long trench coat, that's such a good look. It, it, that's actually a good point because they, they could have kind of gone in so many different ways. There's some awesome back matter in the in the back of this book where they kind of show you some of the redesigns and stuff like that. But for majority of them, they chose to stay pretty close to those Kirby original creations. Something else real fast with the rain I wanted to call out. I love it in comics when they show the rain splashing on people's heads and shoulders and they kind of like have this outline where you see the little droplets explode off their shoulders. Exactly. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that little pop where it's just jumping up. It's like really nice attention to detail. It is. And and it, and it gives the movement, you know, the movement yes. in comics, which you love. Yes, absolutely. Well, my next one also features Icarus. And um, this was a little bit later on when he's getting tortured by those two hilarious henchmen. I don't know what they're doing at this point. I think it's like an electromagnetic field or something. But basically, you see um, Icarus's skeleton being shot through with energy. And the skeleton's kind of like illuminated. There's all these lines of light, purple and pink light going through it really reminded me of a scene in The Watchmen. So I'm giving that oh, yeah. my uh, my Watchmen award, just like when Dr. Manhattan gets, you know, evaporated or whatever. Very similar vibes. I even looked up that old panel and I was like, he definitely used this as a reference because yeah. it's very similar. It's great. Yeah, that like molecular disintegration. I I, I love that. I know exa- I, I didn't think of that reference, but once you said it, I know exactly what you're talking about with Dr. Manhattan whenever he kind of first gets his powers or whatever. Yeah, the scale. Oh, I love that. All right, my next award is the I Am Iron Man Award. And, you know, it's kind of, I, I believe Tony Stark appears earlier because he's working with Thena at some point, but they're at this party and it's kind of the only action scene in the whole movie. I mean, the whole comic is 
this party where there's like four Eternals, they don't know they're Eternals yet, and there's some terrorist plot that's happening where there's some sort of kidnapping supposed to happen. It kind of goes off badly. And most of the action is kind of done, or it's about halfway through, and Iron Man, there's this panel where he bursts through a window. But this is what I love. There is a window. And instead of flying through it, like forward, like head first with his arms out, like breaking the window, he comes in standing up, like full erect, like, t- like you know, straight up and down. And not only does he burst the window, he bursts like the wall above and below the window. He's just causing so much destruction, which is bad for, you know, the cleaners and the janitors and the sort of, you know, architects who are going to have to reconstruct that thing. You know, we feel for you, damage control and the MCU. But as far as John Romita is concerned, Jr., it looks so badass because his suit looks sick. And then you just got all these shards of glass and all these shards of wall just exploding everywhere. And I just love the way he comes in standing up. I don't, it's just such a weird thing. And whenever I was remembering this comic, that image stood out in my mind so much. I remember that from whenever I read it years ago. Yeah, that's a great image. Great entrance. Iron Man loves the theatrics. He yes. loves the moment. So it's very true to character too. I love it. Yeah. And, you know, I was saying damage control. I'm sure he's going to throw, you know, a couple thousand million, however much that costs the building. You know, poor guys, you know, whoever owns that building, commercial real estate's a tough biz. Tough biz, but they'll figure it out. They'll figure it out. <laughs> they got, what do you got next? All right. My next one, I can't go an episode without giving it to someone so i'm giving a breaking the form award this one's cool i wanted to see what you think about this one so this is the celestial is waking up okay this is a one-page spread Uh three panels top panel it's kind of a long rectangle you see his hands are just coming out of the earth that's the first sign of life and that one's encapsulated with um a, a border a white border the next one huge celestial sitting up out of the earth it goes off the pages. The panels goes all the way off the pages. The last one, it has some Eternals. It's got Icarus and Thena and Cersei, and they're all reacting. They're like, it's alive, it's alive. Yeah. And it looks like someone took this panel like in the digital form and just slid it. So half of it is going down through the bottom corner. Then there's a ton of white space where you can see the panel's edge on the other side. And it was just so bizarre and... I loved it. What do you think? What's your interpretation of that final panel? Um, my interpretation, I'm not sure, but I wanted, what I wanted to call out is I love when panels overlay other panels like that because I always wonder how much art is kind of lost underneath. Like uh, sometimes you see these things where an artist draws like something really meticulous. And then because, you know, they want to tell it in these really, you know, exploding the form ways, they just completely overlay another panel and it obscures so much. And I wonder like how much hard work was like underneath that. But um, I, I, I know what you're talking about. And I love that. I love that page. It was great. Great way to break the form and really call attention to the moment. It almost kind of has like a horror movie angle vibe. The Dutch angle, they call that. That's right. Uneasy. But yeah, those the Celestials are just, their designs are so bizarre. And I love the scale of them. Yeah, me too. Me too. What's your next one? All right. Mine next award is the best 
line work. It is three panels. It's whenever Athena first wakes up and Icarus it has been resurrected in Olympia. He, you know, he's been exploded in Adam's art award and now he is awakening in sort of the dream stasis chamber and he's back baby and it's these kind of three pages and they're close-ups like they're full-on close-ups in costume in character and you see um icarus's yellow golden eyes and what i love about it is the line work the shadows underneath his eyes a lot of times they do these heavy heavy black inks but on icarus's face it is really thin shadowy lines these sort of sketches here that make it really sort of smooth but then down on his costume there's much thicker line work and much thicker shadows and i just love the sort of dynamics there of just like making his face still kind of obscured in shadows but a little bit of lighter lighter touch and then his costume down below is just more thick and bulky line work and again whether they're using a pen or a brush you can really add some sick contrast with blacks in comics and i love that yeah, that's great. Nice, nice diversity on the page. Love that. All right, my last one. Um, this one, maybe not as artistic as some of the other ones I mentioned, weird for the art awards, but I just wanted to call it out because I, I love this uh, this technique or whatever in, in comics where I'm going to call this lettering is a language technique because they use these sort of different letter styles of English to just establish the fact that they're speaking in a different language. And there's this one, um, this one part early in the, in the story where Cersei is meeting, uh, Druig? Druig. That's how I say it. Druig. Druig? Yeah. So they're meeting and they have a little meeting in his office with one of, um, Druig's, you know, helpers, whatever employees, and they're speaking in English. It's all normal. Cersei leaves and the two, Druig and his buddies start talking and the letters just change a little bit, you yes. know, just to let you know that it's that kind of Eastern block style. Yes. Now all of a sudden the O's have a little dash th- yes. going through them. Maybe the N's are backwards. And I just love that. It's just such a subtle, easy indicator to go, oh, they're speaking in their native language now. Oh, I love that so much. And it's so much better than doing a little asterisk and saying, now they're speaking Latvian or now they're speaking yeah. Russian, like translated from Russian. Like it's so much better to just... Use letters as a language, Adam. That's right. Have a little. It has a lot of faith in the reader to be like, okay, they're speaking in their own language right now. And something I wanted to call out, which is going to bring us to my last art award, which is the best lettering. <laughs> my award for best lettering, or also the language lettering is a language award, um, is. The Deviants have their own sort of lettering style as well. So you have your kind of traditional humans and Eternals lettering. You have Druig and his native tongues uh, lettering. And then you have the Deviants. And their their bubbles, their speech bubbles are not perfect circles. They're like wavy kind of, you know, uh, crackly, weird bubbles. Their their letters are more handwritten. They're more um, sketchy. They're messy. more yeah, messy, but they are still very legible. And that's something I think uh, your best letters 
called out and with this as well is sometimes they do this where sometimes they'll make the thought bubble like black and then the letters white and it's just hard to read. You know what I mean? It's like, I know what you're going for, but it's just straight up hard to read. And I think what makes Todd Klein such a master letterer, I mean, seriously, this guy is like peak letterer is he does these really interesting creative ways to give color and to give life to, you know, sound because it's one of the only, you know, it's one of the elements that we can't sort of hear in comics, obviously, but he makes it really stand out. And so I have this page where it's there, the deviant army is on the doorstep of Olympia and there's Kra and he's one of like the leader of the deviants. And he says, Graven Eternals, we have gathered from corners and the dark places of the earth and face you in combat. Come, taste the fury of Kra and his army. And Kra and his army are like these big, bold, blocky, Kirby-esque letters just rendered in pink, while the rest are that, like, um, you know, scraggly letter forms. And again, Todd Klein, kudos, man, killed it. It just lets you know, like, how everyone working on this is an artist. They're all trying to, you know, put their artistic stamp on things Something that you forget about that, you know, is as small as the letters, that's someone's job. And it's important to call it out because they do some serious work. They bring it all together and they're one of the last in the sort of the timeline. So whenever everybody else has been taking so long and they're delayed in the process and they need to get it out, need to get it to the printers by Sunday or whatever, there's like, letter, get on it. And uh, I know Todd Klein, he does some digital lettering. He's converted a lot of his letters, his own handwritten letters to digital. But um, it's still just so much work and it's an art form on itself. All right, that's going to wrap it up for the Art Awards. Congrats, everybody. You earned it. We're going to move over to Adaptation Alley. Let's take a stroll, everybody. This is where we talk about adaptations. There is one coming. Adam, why don't you take a stroll? Take us down the alley. Come along with me. We're walking down Adaptation Alley and, you know, so many of these properties are getting adapted these days. This one is getting the big screen treatment right around the corner. This will be coming out November of 2021. I believe that it's going to come out this time. It's oh, been yeah. delayed a little bit, but this year it feels good. It feels right. And it's got a lot of buzz around it because, you know, not only is it just a Marvel movie and they just create a lot of buzz, but... um it's going to kick off potentially the new phase of the MCU and it's helmed by recent Academy Award winning director Chloe Zhao who just won the Academy Award for directing Nomadland um which I really loved, loved I it. love those kind of pensive movies it's beautifully shot Francis McDormand kills it, and it has a nice, you know, it's got a lot to say without saying too much, which is a fine line to dance across. But I'm really excited for it, but I'm also really curious about how they're going to, like we said, modernize this story and fold it into the MCU. There's a lot of work to be done here. There's going to be a ton of characters in this. You know, you got... Some big actors, Angelina Jolie, Selma Hayek, Kumail Nanjiani is in the mix. Yes. It's going to be really fun. Um, Kit Harington's in it. Yes. All those Game of Thrones lovers, you're going to get to see your boy Kit. That's right. And, I mean, I'm curious. The trailer looks awesome. It looks huge. I have no idea what the story is going to be, but it's going to be a similar sort of these Eternals are kind of waking up or coming back to um, reality, I guess, and... 
you know, this is hot on the heels of Avengers Endgame, so their world has been, like, forever changed, and I'm assuming that it's going to have a pretty direct tie to that somehow, but I, I, I wonder how this is going to resonate. This is one of those kind of big moments, I think, in um, the MCU, maybe not too dissimilar from when they introduced the Guardians of the Galaxy and seeing, okay, is our audience going to go for this? Yeah. Like, Guardians proved that they could do these kind of weird, unknown characters and do a space saga. That worked really well. Is this kind of big, mythological, quasi-religious story going to land with the audiences? We can only wait and find out. What do you think, Blaine? Oh, man. I Both Adam and I just rewatched the trailer right before we started recording. And the trailer is a teaser, so we don't have any inkling on what the story is. I would guess probably around 80 to 90% of the teaser that we get takes place before the modern age. So it's all the Eternals um, dabbling in ancient societies. They are, you know, in Roman times. They are in all these different societies. There are some sort of, you know, proto-humans running around. Then later, it does show them in modern times interacting and they make, you know, the classic Marvel like eating around. I think it's, it's it kind of feels like a throwback to sort of the shawarma shop where they're just like joking after a fight or whatever. And they're just like, you know, uh, Icarus is, you know, joking. He's like, oh, I could lead the Avengers. You know, there's no Iron Man. There's no Captain America. And speaking yeah. of, that actor is... You're getting your double dose of Game of Thrones, everybody, because that's Richard Madden is going to play um, Icarus. So you're getting the Kid Harrington and Richard Madden double Game of Thrones dose. Here's my thing, Adam. I wanted to, I wanted to talk about this a little bit. MCU is doing a lot of different things. I love it when they just don't say we're going to make a superhero movie. I think they did that at the beginning. I think a lot of those early Iron Man, Captain America's, Thor's are like, we're making a superhero movie. And and our genre is superhero. Now, I think they're dabbling, and they've been doing it for a while, into these different genres. I mean, Guardians is full-on space kind of comedy, you know, space opera comedy. Then you have, you know, the heist movie with Ant-Man. And you have... Uh, the sort of spy thriller with uh, Winter Soldier and then latest Black Widow. And so I love this playing with genre. And I think, Adam, I don't know how much this the Eternals are going to sort of impact or be a huge part of the MCU. My speculation is they're just going to be a movie and a story that's going to kind of be in the background. And I know they're going to pop up again after this Eternals movie. But I think Kevin Feige is like, okay... We are getting the spotlight. Superhero films and the MCU is the cultural consciousness. Black Black Panther has won an Academy Award for the soundtrack, and it was nominated as well. Um, the The movie was, but we won for the soundtrack. Let's win a Let's win an Oscar. Let's win a freaking Oscar with a superhero movie. We're going to do it. Let's get up and comer Chloe Zhao. We're, we're going to do something totally different. Yes, we'll fit it in. You know, we'll kind of make it kind of make sense. But the Eternals at the end of the day are just not that important. I mean, they could make them important, 
But I don't think they're going to do that. I think they're just going to tell some sort of story, cosmic, celestial, weird story that's going to be in the background. You have these legendary actors. You know, I can't I can't imagine Angelina Jolie's going to – I don't know what her contract looks like, but I don't think she wants to spend all her time in Atlanta filming this shit. Um, and I just think – I think they're going for it. And I think we're going to see this movie straight up at the Academy Awards in way more ways than effects and cinematography and stuff because Chloe Zhao has some serious clout and this teaser looks so – prestigious in a way that none of the other MCU films have. Let's win some awards. Yes. I love that. I think you're probably onto something there. And uh, one thing that I just thought of when you mentioned filming this in Atlanta. So this one actually did a ton of location shooting. I think it was mostly shot on location. You're right. Which is way different than yes. the other Marvel movies. So I'm really excited because this, it looks a lot different. Like you said, it looks like a, like a prestige picture. And yeah, I mean, if this is what they're going to try and do moving forward, I'm excited for the future of Marvel. Yeah. And, but I mean, at the same time, I think that's what I was saying is I, I think this is one of the things they're going to try because they're also going to be doing Taika YTT goofy space yeah. adventures still. And they're still going to be doing plenty of like their other genre forms. But I, I just think it's time to win some awards. It's time where comics and nerd culture has come out of the sh the shadowy Dungeons and Dragons basements, right? Our parents are freaking watching superhero films. You know, if you would have told me that in 2021, you know, it, it, superheroes would be such a large part of the consciousness, I, you know, young Blaine would have never believed you in a million years. And here we are. And I think Kevin Feige is ready. You know, he's just like, it, it is really time to cement our place and make this. I mean, you know, you think of things like 2001, a space odyssey, and you think of where genre films have transcended. Um, they're sort of stereotypical, like that's just schlock, you know, uh, that's just horror, you know, whenever the shining transcended the genre, right? You transcended the genre, the shining, you know, you think of, you know, the films that did it. And I think this is really superhero shot at the sort of big times. Yeah. I, I think that's a great call. Um, just curious. This one has me very curious, I would say. Yeah. And again, like it, Eternals at the end of the day are kind of dumb. So, you know, Chloe Zhao has a lot of work to do to kind of make them interesting and cool. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, we'll see, dude. You better believe we're going to do Beyond the Panels. So come back for that one if you're listening to this later. Um, and I think that's going to wrap it up for this month's episode. Guys, this was Eternals by Neil Gaiman and John Romita Jr. Tell a friend, leave a review. Get out there, pick up our books next month and read it. We'll be follow us on Instagram at Comic Club Podcast. I'll be dropping what we're gonna be reading next next month. Follow along every time there is a new superhero movie or TV show. You better believe we're gonna be doing a Beyond the Panels. I believe we have Suicide Squad next up. You can find me on Twitter at Blaine McGaff. I'm on Instagram at Danger Adam, and that is going to wrap it up. Adam, Comic Club out. Comic Club is brought to you from Upper Esh Media. This episode was edited by Adam J. Cook. Our intro and outro music is by Tiger Cup. 
Katie Livingston at Living Kate designed our logo. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, follow us on social at Comic Club Podcast, and join our Facebook group to continue the conversation online. Remember, everyone, read more comics. Thank you.